When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, uh, my name is Deet Tran. I am a third-generation chef, restaurateur. I'm a, a worker, labor rights activist, and advocate. Most recently, I co-wrote the Red Boat Fish Sauce Cookbook with Gung Pham and uh, Thin Nguyen. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. You and I did a podcast a few weeks ago, and this discussion of the first question that I asked came up. And um, I have... Uh, since then, uh, really put some thought into asking the question of what does it mean to be Vietnamese to our guests. But now I'm going to change it up, and I have been changing it up in, in different ways. But uh, how has it changed for you in your life uh, up until this point? I think your um, one's uh, understanding of one's own identity, I think, changes with like, you know, some sort of pivotal moment, just like it, you know, like significant moments in your life, you know, where things that change like first of all you know like I when I was in Vietnam I didn't think oh what's it like to be Vietnamese because I'm just living my five-year-old life you know um or even in the refugee camp you know I think uh I think um it that changed when you come to the when I came to the U.S. and uh I realized oh uh they don't speak the same language as I do um why are we um getting like a very low level hate crime all the time in the neighborhood, <laughs> you, know? you know, like, uh, so yeah, like when I was a kid, um, you know, the main theme when I came to the US was like, wow, Nami, they're very wasteful, you know, like they waste everything, like everything is like disposable. And, you know, like, even like taking a shower, like the first time I, I saw, um, a commercial for it, I think it was Irish Spring, right. and they were like the showers going, and they're just like soapy, and we're like, oh my god, phone, you know how <laughs> how new of it, you know, because like, well, what did we do, right? We put it in a bucket, and then we have a little scoop, mm. and then you know that's how you would uh, you would base so the idea of just like, oh wow, these like they're just running that water like forever and lathering up. So like you know that was like very different. I go, you know, so I understood like those are me, and then we're not me, you know, or like when I uh, and um, for a long long time, you know, we'd always um, want we'd come home from like going out somewhere, probably Little Saigon. We come back to the house, and our house ha- house was full of teepee. You just and we're like me, they're so they're so wasteful. Like they tell you, I had tell you. They tell you, 
right? But we didn't know it was like a like a low level hate crime. Like they right. hated hated us. It was just like, wow, they're like Americans are so rich they could just waste toilet paper. <laughs> so, but you know, like so, yeah. I think it, it changes. Like you know, I think before I kind of really understood what was going on. I just thought like you know we were very thirty. You know, like I understood that Vietnamese people were very thrifty compared to yeah. like white people, uh, Americans, or just Americans in general, just American born, you know. And then the first time we, I kind of realized it was like some animosity was when, you know, we used to go dumpster diving on dra trash day, you know, like we'd go and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, here's a sewing machine, perfectly good. You know, maybe it just needs to be oiled up or whatever. And we take, we never bought a new sewing machine. Like we always bought a took a sewing machine from the dumpster, you know? And then one time a cousin of mine came home completely bloodied because some of the neighborhood kids were beating him up because they said that they were, you know, like that they were stealing their trash. I'm like, dude, it's you, your fucking trash. trash. Yeah, you know, and then, uh, well, we handled it. Because <laughs> there were 15 of us. Okay, but how did was, you handle Wait, 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 yeah. I can't let you go. Wait, how'd you handle <laughs> How did you handle it? Uh, <laughs> handle it. <laughs> I mean, we just browbeat him because I think they, 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 he thought that it was just this one kid and no one's around. But then they didn't realize our five bedroom house was full of five families. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, it was yeah. like every, every house, every bedroom was an apartment. <laughs> so they were like <laughs> 15 kids. So, you know. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Cerritos. Got it. Um, I lived on the same street as Lindsay Wagner's um, uh, brother. So that's a little, <laughs> the bionic woman. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, so we just, we, we didn't, I, 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 I not went through a punch, but all 15 of us like went to, I like asked the cousin, who's the guy? And we just browbeat him and he got freaked out because one didn't know what we, we were going to do, but none of us ever threw a punch. <laughs> wow. But, and then same thing happened to my my other little cousin uh when she went to kindergarten she's one of her younger cousins and then she came home crying she said they're so mean and they pushed her around and so 15 of us went to went to elementary school yeah. i say and browbeat like a kindergartner like <laughs> so i guess it was intimidation i guess you know but yeah like we stood up we but none of i don't none of us really you know i i don't remember any punches being thrown but, but like we've been, been, right been you know uh, you yeah. arrived in cerritos uh and you grew up in cerritos basically right yeah mm -hmm. and um you know cerritos is between orange county and la kind of right it's basically mm -hmm. between it i've I always it's, thought it's it's geographically la but it's more culturally akin to orange county correct so that's kind of, yeah correct that's a perfect description of of cerritos when I think about those in-between cities between LA and um, and Orange County, I, it's very special because you kind of get to, to share a unique uh, combination of, because they're very different uh, cities uh, or uh, ways of growing up, uh, Orange County and LA, and to live in like a Downey or Cerritos mm -hmm. or those kind of um, neighborhoods are, it's, it's unique and it's, you can go to both cities um, fairly easy in you know, 20 minutes each way right yeah yeah i mean i think like you know when people say like oh i grew up in little saigon i think you know i think more people actually grew up going to little saigon you know yeah. but living in long beach you know uh living in uh, norwalk 
you know, like Artesia and Doritos, like, you know, like, but, you know, where did we culturally, like we spent uh, our, our time wasn't necessarily in in the in the, our residence, uh, the city of our residence, but more like, you know, we would go like, you know, since, you know, I think like, I think Little Saigon developed, I would say, you know, I think even like 79, it had a little bit of something like eight, like the 80s and then 82 right. is really when it popped off um was you know we'd like you know every weekend was the bonsa right we didn't call those like we call bonsa right bonsa. and like you know like what do you want from bonsa like i want a bun bad i want a jingle lord i want to <laughs> like you 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 kind of pre-game because you only go <laughs> once a week you know and then my grandparents made jalua you know um that was their side hustle uh mm. so like you know they would go to namhua namhua was an og i still love namhua for their a frozen jazz all that they make is the best the best uh you know uh jazz cool right um and so like you know they would like buy like 50 100 pounds of uh you know tea jot so, so you can make a jalua at home because they had like the buffalo chopper yeah to make I mean, like a lot of people i mean that's kind of like after you know my grandparents did it first and then when an you know when a, a new relative would come you know it was during the odp time where like one day you just get a phone call and go hey Back, back, uh, back bike is at the airport with his kids, you know, I'm like, oh, back bike. Oh, okay. You know, and all of a sudden a whole new family comes and, you know, and you got no notice. And so, but when Mike bike's family came, they're like, okay, we already got business for you. You know, right. So they would make like, and then, you know, and back home would come and like, Hey, you knew you don't got the restaurant not set up for you yet. You know, it's like that, that, that Buffalo chopper like traveled, you know? Yeah. Can you tell us what a Buffalo chopper is for okay, people who don't know? A Buffalo chopper is the crazy ass, um, it's like a food processor, but you know, when you, you know, I, I know a lot of people are just afraid of that little blade that they have in a food processor, like a Cuisinart, just imagine that, but like 10 times as big. So yeah. it's fucking cra crazy. And it's like, no children should be around it, but we were around it all the time and washing it and stuff. Like it was just, and it's just like, it almost like looks like a, like a mini jet propeller, yeah. <laughs> you know, like jet engine blade, you know? So um, kind of like, you know what it was? It's like, a, you know, that Indiana Jones, that really racist one with um, short round and some guy got killed because he got caught into a blade of like a, a ceiling fan. It was yeah. like that, you that, know? Yeah. That's how, yeah, so that was a buffalo chopper and you need you need that to grind uh, the jet lure, unless you were yeah. OG and then you want to pound it, but who, who the hell's doing that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> my my grandmother lost two of her fingers oh. uh, in that buffalo chopper. Oh my god! Yeah, so it's she like made jello. Yeah, when we were when she was in Vietnam, and yeah, they. Oh my god! Oh gosh! Okay, I'm about to faint because I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's really scary. So like a yeah. you know, as an eight year old, you're like, oh, the fuck, I don't want to help grandma. <laughs> you know, can I do anything else but that? But even it was scary because like my grandparents when I met them. They were, you know, like in their 60s already. So I always thought they're going to die anyway. So I'm like, oh, my God, you're around. It's, it's just like, she's so dangerous. But they are, you know, grandma was like fucking fearless. So, you know, yeah. So, so when you were growing up, what did you want to do? You know, when I was growing up, I wanted I, I had I had already had a, a plan. Um, I wanted to become an English professor. 
I just want, because I love liter English literature and I just wanted to read, you know, Victorian literature and, and, and Regency Jane Austen literature. And that's what I wanted to do and, and poetry. And so that's, you know, I didn't kind of care about any other subjects, but I really loved English. And um, it, it, it began because we were foster kids because my, my parents were here and, and so and but my, my father had not officially passed away but he was in prison in Hoptop, you know and so um my grandparents were our foster parents and uh because of that you had to have um social workers come and every time the social worker co comes you know it, we it was like the warden had come like we didn't it was like it didn't feel like this person was looking out for our welfare it's more like if we fucked this shit up then we're gonna have to like go to an orphanage or some shit <laughs> <laughs> you know so or it was very scary so we didn't think of the, uh, the social worker as a friend you know but the social worker would come and one social worker um they weren't all that nice, but this social group was really sweet, always gave us books and had given me a coloring book because it was, it was age appropriate, but had given my sister two books. And one of them was uh, the, the Secret Garden. And I totally fell in love with it, appropriated for myself. <laughs> You know, and like just really fell in love with the language of it all. And like, you know, like I love looking up new words. And so anyway, I kind of thought that would be my trajectory. And it's because also like it was a way to escape my life, you know, and like, you know, just being able to be transported. I mean, now when I look at literature from that era, it's very problematic and I would probably be <laughs> like trafficked. You know, I would not have the agency of these white characters, you know, even right. if they, even if it's David Copperfield, like even if it was like a, you, you had you had some trials and tribulations, it wouldn't be the same as like a coolie, you know, <laughs> so, you know, like I wouldn't be like stuck in an opium den, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But at the time I didn't have that, you know, so again, like that, you know, that changed and that kind of affected mm. that's like a, a, when I you know, went to college and I realized I took my first post-colonial literature class. I go, oh, I was identifying with the wrong ass people mm -hmm. because I would never, this would never be my my situation in that era, you know? And so, um, you know, that, it, then I realized, you know, uh, like had a different understanding of being Vietnamese, you know? And at, you know, the, the, the same time as my, you know, my like uh, race awareness was also when I came out. So, you know, like it's very much tied with like my queerness too. So yeah, and that changes, you know, so every kind of moment when you kind of have a new understanding of yourself, your, your, your understanding of what being Vietnamese is, and then it also becomes irrelevant too, because for me, mm. like, you know, like, you know, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? Like your original question, I find that, you know, like, uh, sometimes it just it just locks people in, and I think you know uh, I don't find a lot of power in locking myself into any identity that's static, you know. And so I, I think like you know I hopefully you know I always have revelations about myself, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point you bring up because when I first started out, it was just what does it mean to be Vietnamese, and then as it went along, I really began to realize that this changes a lot. So I I added what does it mean to be Vietnamese. To you today so that's like yeah. you know yeah. what how do we market how do we mark ourselves today like how do how are we defining it today in, the, in yeah. time so when future generations hear this they're like okay that's what it kind of meant for that person in that city at that time and now it's like oh well you know what i want to hear 
how it's changed and how it's evolved for you. And I think that's now more, uh, we get a bigger, a broader picture of, of this all because Vietnamese identity changes and then our personal identity changes so much as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and, and so when you got to college, uh, you studied English or was it something related to that? I was a completely colonized being because I studied English literature with a double um, major in French. Hook, <laughs> line, and sinker. Yeah, you know, so yeah, I dropped the double French double major. I was like, um, uh, like you know, one class away from being able to qualify for the double major, but it made me so angry because I'd taken this post-colonial colonial literature class and I'm like, fuck this shit, you know, like, what the fuck, like, you know, and then it made me, that's when I realized, you know, like, I had spent all this time, like, seven years, you know, intensely studying French, I mean, like, I didn't just study French, I was, like, really fucking into it, like, um, when I was in, in, in high school, I felt that, you know, I joined the French class, the French club, and then I felt like the French classes, our advanced French classes, our honors French classes, wasn't, weren't rigorous enough, so I lobbied, mm. We did. We we fucking fundraise. We put on a Valentine's Day dance. Bunch of fucking nerds put on this dance. This <laughs> so we can fundraise for fucking more rigorous, um, advanced French books. Like you hardcore. You know, <laughs> so fucking dumb. But you know, but like all these like cheerleaders and all these popular kids that we were not part of, you know, went to this dance that we curated because we wanted to have, you know, we didn't say it was like a, it, it was just at the French club that sponsored it, but like, we didn't say why it was, you know, we just said, here, just come and dance your ass off, you know, but yeah. And so that's kind of how hardcore I was with my French and, you know. So what does it mean to be French to you today? Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, when I went to college and like, you know, I was just like, you know, I had I, I watched a French movie uh, a week. I like my 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 uh, I wanted to go to study abroad at some point or like after college, I would go to France. And so I wanted to like they said, like that you, you really become, you know, a, a very fluent in French if you can and dream in French. So that was kind of like if I could have a dream. That was your goal. Yeah. And I had a little bit of that, you know, but then at that moment, I, had, you know, just kind of understood what a, you know, colonized being was. And then I was like, fuck that shit. Like, so I know more. I knew the French pluperfect tense and all this book fucking, you know, like French is the, the tenses are insane. You know, most, most Germanic romantic language, the tenses are insane. But then I go, wow, I fucking can't even fucking read a newspaper in Vietnamese. The oh, fuck, you know, shit. you know, because because Vietnamese newspapers, it's not how people talk. Right. So it's like it's kind of almost the opposite of like the English um, American newspapers, because they try to get you at a certain level. I think Vietnamese newspapers like the, the I mean, I when I read when I mean, I could like still spell it out and like read it very slowly, but I didn't have a huge comprehension because a lot of the words was like, you know, what, what the fuck is that? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't understand. And it made me it just made me so upset, like here's this language that's built in that I have a whole community for and I fucking just ignored it to the point where I, I don't, you know, like I sound like a fucking idiot, you know, and, but here I can like, I can write, you know, like uh, a whole uh, essay on like Victor Hugo, you know, and, and Baudelaire and they flipped them out, you know, like the stupid bullshit. And so anyway, so now I'm no longer fluent in French, <laughs> but I'm not that great in Vietnamese either. <laughs> What, what do you think drove you to be such a Francophile? Oh, because 
you know, like my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, that's what they thought was like, you know, high literature was like, you know, fucking classy shit, you know, like, we just fucking bought into that, that, that bullshit. I mean, that's like, just because I didn't grow up during the French occupation doesn't mean like, the residue and legacy of, of, of colonialism didn't, you know, isn't still affecting me. You know, I say it still is there, you know, like uh, I, I so many people like, oh, well, so and so, well, she knows, you know, she knew how to write in French. I'm like, so did every fucking person that had to like, fucking get educated, well, you know, whatever. Well, you know what it what it's going to become in like 10 years is like, you know, it's going to be the whole, whole Korean thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's going to be the same thing. It's like, oh, yeah, he went to study in Korea or, you know, she was part of this K-pop, uh, you know, a management agency. It's going to be all of that, too. And, you know, at some point, uh, we're going to have to cash in our chips, our Vietnamese chips and be like, no, 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 guys, we need to be the fucking destination for all young people. And for or am I wrong? Am I am I wrong to be thinking um, this way? You know, I, I, I think Vietnam is already be, becoming that, but I don't think it's the same thing because it's not like fucking Korea is going to us and colonizing us and like mm. calling us coolies and making us like conscripting us to work on rubber plantations. So it's not quite the same, but, but Good yeah. Point. Yeah, you know, so the French are a whole different thing. They they weren't they weren't like taxing through thirty percent of our GDP with salt and shit, you know. So, um, but what I think, you know, I I totally think that actually, you know, uh, the Saigon economy, um, you know, this this, you know, I mean, COVID kind of puts everything out of whack. But I think people are already um, looking to Saigon. I mean, to to like um, Vietnam in general as an economic power. You know, it might not be as recognized yet, you know, but if you're talking about like culturally about K-pop, I think like, you know, like Vietnamese artists are, are, are coming up like, you know, um, Fury. I, I was like the the, the Netflix um, movie. I mean, it's not it's not a Netflix movie, but, you know, it came, came on. Netflix. Well, it was I think it was on Netflix for a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. So, but they bought had, it. They licensed it. Yes, yes. So, but I thought that was kind of really amazing, you know. And it was so funny. Like we just were like, this is like taken, but with like right with like by Vietnamese. But I also we also like, well, she's really girl bossy. And then we saw like a picture of her eating just eating somewhere, and she was had a shirt that said girl boss on it, and it was just hilarious. Oh, that's uh, so funny. Because it's like pretty much all seas of her girl bossing, right? You know, so um, so I I don't think Vietnam's very far away from that. And like Dustin wins um movie year years and years ago, I had already kind of augured in that. Like I felt like um when he like plays a villain for the first time, I really loved it. Um, so I think it's I think it's becoming like a cultural uh, power um, already. It's you know, um, and I kind of like that the way it's how it's organically becoming, and you know, so. Um, when did that, you, I don't think we're far away from that. Did you ever, because I remember going to your restaurant, uh, Girl Girl Dinette, a few times, and I went with the, my good friend Anderson Lay, mm -hmm. and I don't remember if he mentioned anything about you being um, adjacent to the film business. No, no, um, I'm just a, I'm just a supporter. You know, I love uh, visual communications. Okay. You know, and like you know that that was that was our that was a major event for us. You know, in our twenties. You know, like we would like this is you know before everything became digital. Like they would have this like you know whole program, and you know we definitely like, you know, like that's how we planned it. Like, okay, are you going to the short? 
the short films or you go you know like we like and i all my friends were like either on a jury for some selection or in in the the, the short short films or whatever you know and uh i love leslie ito who you know and for linda you know so like that was always been been in our you know in 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 my like so you're old school wow it was been fun, around this you know, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I we would like we would we would we would we'd watch the premiere and stuff, but we really love the obscure short stuff, you yeah. know, yeah. because that's like you know it's just like or like this one movie like it was called oh now I forgot, but it was like this experimental film feature length, and I just love the visual communication like gave it an audience, you know, like these these films that would never kind of like reach like even an art house film, you know, even to reach yeah. an art film is very hard. So I, I I love that. And, you know, and shorts is great because it's like, you know, uh, short films are great because if you don't like it, it's done in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it always gave a chance to, you know, so you, you got you got to watch 10 films, you know, and, and you know, I've always been trying to tell Leslie, you know, but we life got in the way, but I'm like, Leslie, it's time to do like an Asian American food film festival because uh, all these young, you know, at the time in the nineties, all these um young uh, filmmakers, one of the first things they always did was like, did something food related. Like someone like filmed, like a, did an experimental film on kimchi making mm. or, you know, so it was always like that always always featured uh, in so many narratives, you know, so I'm hoping one day that's going to happen because I think it'd be super fun. And, you know, my idea, you know, and I just could never make it happen because I was running the restaurant, but I was like, Leslie, like, just think like, just like, even if it's archival, like, just look at the old right. submissions, you know, it's just like, let's do like, and, you know, I mean, I feel like now the nineties is like, all that fashion is actually hip again. So it might be really cool, but like, <laughs> you know, so um, I do grew up, yeah, I grew the up retrospective. With, yeah, exactly. And just like pick the pick the food related ones. You know, it could be transcendentally too. And yeah. um, and uh, there's a you know like I, I used to love the Garfield Theater in San Gabriel Valley, and there was like an Asian art. You know, like they showed like really like Hong Kong Jackie Chan movies and stuff. Like some crazy movies like people just getting disemboweled. It was kind of like a little snuffy to me. You know, so I'm like, I'll avoid that shit. But um, but their concessions and was great because they had popcorn, but they also had bakko. I mean bakko and 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 mako and you know. And I was like, wouldn't it be fucking great to have like an event where like like you know, in Korea, like they would actually grill cuttlefish for you inside mm. the theater, like fire inside That's the hard. theater, fire inside <laughs> the theater. Like, just, Hardcore. We wouldn't do that, but I mean, it'd be so fun. You know, to have like an outdoor screening and just have like, just like, you know, Vietnamese concessions or like Korean concession, you know? Cause I, I and I, I, I would just, I would die of happiness to smell, you know, uh, muk. McCall next to me. <laughs> My girlfriend, on the other hand, would not be too pleased. But like you know, with some hoisin and sriracha, man, you know, heaven, you know. <laughs> you know, um, let's uh, just for everybody listening, uh, visual communication. If you're listening, uh, uh, Dip said it twice. It's not a, a phrase that's like, oh, just visually communicating. It's a, an actual uh, nonprofit entity here in Los Angeles. Uh, it's been. A good seven decades, I think, uh, in existence, yeah. and um, they host the uh, L I believe it's the LA Asian Film Festival 
the they gave justin lynn his start start yeah you know john cho shopping for fangs that was right. his first feature that he appeared in so like it, yeah they they kind of was they were the launching pad and still are the launching pad for a lot yes. of talent and it's yeah. very empowering because um you know just recently i, I was sitting talking to two young Taiwanese uh, kids, one from Taiwan, one uh, Taiwanese American, and they were complaining to me that they were um, applying to internships in Hollywood and not getting a callback. I'm like, have you heard of the LA Asian Film Festival? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, go volunteer for that. And you mm -hmm. can meet people in the industry and yada, yada, yada. And it's a, a wonderful place to really congregate and build um, your social uh, tribe because that that is where a lot of us have networked and and met you know all the people that we know and that's how I know of Anderson Lay through, through the organization too yeah exactly and it's that and for some reason foom and uh, foom film and yes. food are so uh, intertwined uh, in this city and throughout the world I've noticed that a lot of people that uh, worked in the film industry go into the food industry and vice versa and anderson lay uh is no uh, exception his family are uh, of the pig and the lady uh in hawaii and um piggy smalls for uh, you know everybody which is a great been... name yeah it's amazing <laughs> so when you got to uh college and uh you're studying literature and french and were you cooking were you involved in food um, uh, I was cooking for, for just for my friends, obviously, because I wanted a, a career in, uh, in academics. Um, but um, it was my first time having my own kitchen because, you know, my grandma was such like a, a force that you just, you know, her kitchen was her domain, you know, and it just like, it's, she's, she's like a bright star, just burn the fuck out of you, you know? So like, was my, like, I got to be my own little... <laughs> I, I got to I got to go into a different galaxy in which uh, grandma was did not loom large. And so I got to like, you know, learn how to cook for the first time. I mean, I my grandma taught me how to cook because, you know, like she wanted to make sure that when I am so like, you know, I know how to cook all bullshit, you know, like. OK, so you have a grandmother who's old school, right? Northern yeah. mm -hmm. old school. OK. And so this concept of Lamzo, right, let's talk uh -huh. about that, because I can't it. imagine. <laughs> It, it is utterly bullshit, but it is worthy to talk about because um, this is a, a paradigm that is um, patriarchal. It is uh, it's upside down. It is um, all the things. It's misogynist. I mean, it's just pure bullshit. Yeah. But Lamzo and it's means upheld, and it's upheld by by women, and it's yes. executed by women. By women, you're the, absolutely the, the right. men benefit from it, but the women are the enforcers. Yeah. yeah, and and it is crazy because if you are, um, Lamzao means you are a <laughs> work work like you work work workhorse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're I mean, the you're the yeah. family slave, but okay, so you are the daughter-in-law basically to yeah. the to the family. So you move into the, the 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 man side, the husband side, and you Lamzao, you are their servant basically. You're an indentured servant to for a, like a year for like a year yeah. there, there is a time limit on this bullshit <laughs> oh, i didn't know that yeah you, it's I only didn't... for a year i mean it's kind oh, of really? like the, when you when you get married and you like have your own first job you give a you know a year of your the the the, the, the son has to give a year of the salary to the mom is that I that's no yeah that. yeah that's i mean it's not enforced as um 
you know, uh, uh, strictly, but like if yeah. you're gonna, you're good, you're a good mama's boy. You do that's what you do. Is like, okay, so when when you were growing up and you hear these sort of like these ideas, at what point in your uh, mental sort of capacity are you reacting? Uh, I'm like, um, never, <laughs> well, you know, like I, I, okay. So, you know, I mean, I, I never questioned that I would get married or I have to get married, you know, and, and this is like, this is like why I was so drawn to like English literature, you know, it's like, uh, and especially a, a particular kind of literature, which is like Victorian literature, which focus heavily on female romantic friendships, you know, like friendships that are romantic, but you know, like from the neck up. And so. Uh, the idea of like, I just like, I just imagine this is, <laughs> it's like I would get married to a, a, like a very gentle man, you know, <laughs> and um, we'd have a, we'd have a wonderful relationship. And I, I, like I said, from the neck up, you know, and then, uh, and then at night we would just turn off the lights and he would do what he had to do and we forget about it. And the next day I would like resume my life with my, all these female friends that I have that I love romantically, you know, like it was, you know, it was like, <laughs> that's really, <laughs> the, I thought that was the height of it. It's just like, look, I'm not, I'm trying, I'm not trying to go for a macho guy. I'm not trying to, <laughs> you know? I want to, I want the most feckless man, you know, who's <laughs> gonna just go with what I need to go. And like, you know, like the most asexual man is like, yes, you are the one for me, you know? Um, and so that's kind of what I thought, you know, if I, I the route I had to, to, to go, you know, um, before, before I came out and I go, I don't fucking have to marry a man. So, you know, the, so I was much more worried about the future mother-in-law because even my grandma, you know, as much as she enforced it, you know, she, uh, she also, uh, hated it because, um, she married, you know, she agreed for my mom to marry my father because my father's, uh, mother was already deceased. And she says, oh, we, we agreed to this marriage because, um, she, she doesn't have to lamzo because the mom was already dead. So, you know, so like, even oh, the woman wow. who go through it kind of like, fuck that shit too. But, you know, obviously not fuck that shit, you know? So, um, it's, I, I feel like, you know, I was kind of laughing, like, you know, I think like, um, you know, I feel like daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws spend a whole lifetime trying to repair the fucking bullshit that happened in the first year of, <laughs> of her joining wow. the family, you know, because it's, 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 it's brutal, you know, and, and it's the, 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 the concept behind it is that, you know, you're not bringing anything to the fucking family. You're like a fucking drain. That's why, like, you know, like they didn't invest in girls because like one, like, why would we invest in a daughter? Because she's going to go to another family anyway, you know? And then when you, so like you didn't have any value in the, your birth family and you go to your husband's family and you don't have no fucking value either. So then you have to, even though you fucking bring a dowry with you, you know, then you have to like, or like become like an unpaid internship, you know, until you become a mother and you can do that bullshit to some other woman. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, just and like that, really bullshit. That trauma goes deep because, you know, I've seen it in my own family where the sisters of the brothers like gang up on the Zelda. Yeah. And, and, and it is, it's not one year. It's like the whole life of the, the woman. And then it, it, it creates all this weird dynamic because it's like if the Zelda comes from like a more affluent or more established family, the politics inside the, 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 the women who are the siblings of the man, it gets all dicked up. It gets all weird and, and, and 
discombobulating where there's like jealousy because you know that family didn't bring us to America all this crazy shit and it and it for life this uh poor daughter-in-law is crucified because she's not from this original family and it just I don't know how and why um these things are are, are continuing in in the world today yeah, it's bullshit. But you know, like, no, you know, like, I don't want to make it like, like, women had no agency in this. Like, some women get out of it. Like, one, like, like, look, we gotta fucking move away from your fucking family. You know, I don't have to deal with them except for the like, holidays or something. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you, you find workarounds and that. And you know, and but the thing is that you know, I'm trying to think like, you know, I, I mean, obviously, my grandma must have had had a mo had her Lamzo year, but I can't imagine because she was so powerful, you know, and she had grandpa like grandpa was like anything you want you know so <laughs> I think I feel like grandma's like she never felt you know she was like this is bullshit but she never felt powerless she's like I'm gonna get through this fucking year and we're gonna go out and we're gonna strike out on our own you know mm. I'm, gonna be my, I'm gonna put my own millionaire you know <laughs> yeah so, so you know like it's 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 not like uh women don't get out of it you know but you but it, you can't get caught in where you know you think like the the approbation of your your husband's family is all there is and like not yeah. all women kind of fall into that trap you know so you're, you're cooking uh you know in college and you know after college do you go out and you get a regular job or are you now finding yourselves in more of the kitchen space no you know um i uh so when i realized i don't want to I went to decolonize myself and like so I, I stopped taking French. I took more, uh, you know, uh, ethnic studies, um, uh, sociology. And then, uh, you know, I was like, and this is during the time of the LA uprising. So 92, I graduated yep. in 94. So uh, then you I go to like, squad here in LA or I back East? UC Riverside. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had this wonderful professor, her name is Edna Bonasic. She and Ed, uh, uh, Ed Lee, um, co-sponsored this Edmund Lee co-sponsored uh, or like wrote a paper or like came up with this idea of like the the um you know what, what is it called the Asian middleman which is kind of like you know how it you know the modern minority uh myth has actually backfired and the Asian American community has become like a place for like uh, white America to like absolve itself of its sins by saying that you know by putting up this modern minority as a as like a, an idea that you can succeed in, in this and there's no racism but at the same time they, they become a buffer you know so all like the all the anger that uh rises up from racial inequity gets you know focused on uh you know ethnic uh you know or or immigrant um right. business uh businessmen or business people so anyway so that kind of really you know like they can you know they talked about this as a theory and you know or like not theory but you know like this construct but then here it was it was playing out in in, in real in life the, mm -hmm. in the la uh, uprising and so like you know i just like you know i really it just it changed my my trajectory because i'm like you know i don't want to be a professor and like sit in a fucking ivory tower and as much as i love literature it didn't feel like it was like purposeful you know and so i wanted to like really do social justice work and um you know i still wasn't in, in my, my head i'm like oh i'd love to own a restaurant one day cook the food i wanted to cook that's like not like exactly like the food my, my my relatives and grandparents cook um but i just didn't really feel called i felt it kind of frivolous and yeah. so i said i wanted for you know i said um so i talked to edna 
and I talked to some other folks and they're like, that'd be great, you know? And, and I said, I don't want to be in academia. <clears throat> and at the time we were already doing like protests. We were also like, uh, you know, every weekend we were going to Beverly Hills to um, protest sweatshop work. Cause this is like during the time like the El Monte um, uh, sweatshop, sweatshop work. I mean, th I mean, that was pure, that was truly traffic slave work because they were like behind, uh, you know, barbed wire. People don't know about it. You can Google it, the El Monte sweatshop scandal, you know? Um, and so uh, somebody said to me like, um, you know, nonprofit work, uh, it's really hard work and you'll probably burn out in, in 10 years. That's kind of like what people say. And I said, especially the work I wanted to do. And so I said, I can live, I can give the my first 10 years out of college doing this, you know, wow. I'll burn the fuck out. And, you know, and like they said, the pay isn't great. And I'm like, I don't fucking care. Like, I don't fucking live an extravagant life. And, you know, like, I just felt like the older I got, the more I would care about a mortgage, you know, uh, or, or care about a savings or retirement, you know, like, uh, I was like, why not like my these years, I don't have to compromise, I can live really spare, you know. <clears throat> And that's what I did. So I like my first job, I made $17,000 a year, <laughs> you know, but it was like all the work I wanted to do from the back of my head, like I said, in 10 years, like when I graduated in 10 years, I want to own a restaurant. And then uh, in 10 years, I owned a restaurant, like, you know, like three years before the 10 years was going to be up. I said, I should like actually start looking at, you know, wow. how to, so I like wrote a business plan, took some classes, that kind of thing. And, you know, but, you know, I'm really glad I did that because in the 10 years I was working in nonprofit, I really got to understand labor, the issues of labor, the issues affecting workers. And, um, you know, and like, you know, this is a time when like, I felt like my understanding of a living wage increased and, you know, it was kind of like 10 years of a, of, of a meditation and like, what, what would it mean to have a restaurant, mm. you know? And so I, I enacted all of those um, values in my restaurant. I, I think if I had just opened a restaurant and I have had that experience of like 10 years of meditation and yeah. what what does it truly mean to to have a restaurant that doesn't exploit labor because when you start to do that like when I first started to uh price out my rest my uh, my dishes I was just doing one of the ways in which you price out your dishes you kind of just set the price the what to what your the current market is uh setting. the comps yeah yeah and then and so I'm like okay you know I think at the time maybe like Dofa was like, I'm trying to remember. Seven, maybe two, eight dollars. Yeah. Like sometimes it was like six, you know, like maybe mm -hmm. six to eight, you know, like there was. And so I said, okay, if that's the case, then here's like, here's my food cost. Here's my this cost. Here's my rent. And, you know, like prorate the rent to once a year, whatever. And it turned out like, oh my God, this is like, this, is, this doesn't work. And so, yeah. and that's when you realize, oh, the labor, people are shortchanging the labor, you know? And so, you know, I just said, okay. Let's, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to actually like, I start with my labor and I wanted to start everybody off at $1 above minimum wage, like the lowest paid worker, which usually is the dishwasher is paid $1 above minimum wage. And then I worked up that way. And that's where I got to my cost, which was like higher than anyone else's, <laughs> you know? And they were like, the fuck? I'm like, that's what it is, you know? Like, and, and the bowls were smaller, <laughs> you know? Like, 
Uh, I took a lot of hit, okay? I took the hit for the culture, okay? Every time somebody <laughs> fucking complained to me, I said, I do this, I, 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 you know, I'm doing this for the greater good. Like, so when you go to eat fall somewhere else, you know, you think, oh, that's cheap versus this is expensive. This should be the norm and that's cheap. And then you should ask why it's cheap, you know? And then for me, like, I have like a great, you know, I have, uh, I have like a, a prof almost profound, um, empathy for the um the market forces uh that small business especially immigrant businesses have to contend with in terms of pricing so i never wanted to shame anybody but it was more like hey if you're if you're someone who's thinking about owning a restaurant because i think a, a, a restaurant that's already um in existence their business model is their business model it's hard to, to come out of that but yeah. if you're starting a business here, why don't you start off? Don't talk, don't think about you know what's comparable prices. Start with how much you want to pay, and then go above from that. You know, and so um, yeah. So anyway, that's that's uh, that's kind of um, how I started the restaurant. Well, I think the state of affairs for restaurants and food in California is kind of fucked. It's bleak. It is. It is. It's yeah. bleak. Um, Unless you're charging like top dollar um, and even even top dollar, like a restaurant like True Food, right? Mm -hmm. um, I just don't see the economics working out uh, long term. And especially like you you see that in the grocery store, things are like almost double. You see gas prices up, but you don't see restaurants raising their prices double or you don't even see it 15 20%. They raised it, but you don't really see it. So how are they how is it all like the math working out because it's not really compensating and catching up yet. I think it I think it will and I do think it's because people are so afraid. I think I think I think what our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold happening is um you know uh restaurant owners and like independent operators they're just taking a hit they're working longer hours yeah they're working those you know if they're working 11 hours before they're working 14 now <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. it's really so I, I i don't think it's necessarily sustainable and you know i think people really like oh i miss sitting down and having service and i go okay but how much you know how fucking important is that like fucking get it fast casual like you know i think it's just um you know in some ways i think like, the, the 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 business model of like old school yeah fa, uh, places are going to be more like what do you want number one okay you're done yeah you know <laughs> like wouldn't you go over there you know 
<laughs> like what's like what's the fucking matter with that you know like you want to go like full service you you, you know it's either if it's if the price is low that means like workers aren't getting paid or like operators are are working more hours unpaid and just trying to take a hit but i really am am very I really want to see actually Vietnamese restaurant go to more, even more to a fast casual, you know, and, and, and I'd, I'd love for, for, you know, for folks to find a way to, 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 to kind of like imbue it with hospitality, but without service, you know, cause you can, you know, no one complains about like Shake Shack's lack of service, yeah. but they're fast casual you know, but they have a sense of hospitality or whatever, you know? And so this is kind of, I'm, I'm like, that's kind of what I want to see, like, you know, Vietnamese restaurateurs are very resourceful. And it's like, this is the way to go. Like, you just got to figure out a way to, like, still imbue it with hospitality without, like, a lot of, you know. So it the less workers you have, you know, the less labor you have, the more you can pay your labor to, you know. Like, so it's just, and, and the thing is that, you know, people are leaving the restaurant, restaurant workers are leaving the, the industry because the pay is so terrible. I'm like, Ashley, so you're even having a hard time finding staff willing to, oh my God, to work. It's hard. Yeah. And I don't, I don't buy that. It's like a labor shortage. It's more like people don't want to fucking work in that fucking environment, you know? And so like, how do you like, you know, I think a fast casual could be an opportunity to like, how do you like create, um, a a, a, a a working environment that actually people want to come back to and it's not because people are lazy it's because they're like fuck this shit you know and i i'm like for me like if it's either operators or, or workers i always kind of side with the workers because they always get sh shafted because really when a restaurant goes under it's the majority of the times it's the workers haven't paid to two weeks already you know that's they're always holding the bag you know and so I, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested in, I, you know, again, I'm very, um, I'm very, uh, empathetic, empathetic yeah. how hard it, hard, how hard it is for operators. Cause I used to be one too, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, as hard as we have it, you know, we just can't use that to, to, to then like, you know, ignore the, 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 the people are actually do the work every day, yeah. you know, and with, without long... any benefit of, of, of profit sharing, unless yeah. it's a worker owned project, you know? How long did you have Good Girl Danette? I had Good Girl Danette for like nine and a half years. Mm. Um, yeah, I was really trying to hold on to the to I get to ten, and I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? You know, and yeah. that's a, and it, and you know, and one of the reasons why, um, well, a main part of why I uh, I I, I um, sold sold the site to Burger Lords, love them, uh, was that you know. Um, rent was getting high yeah you know like i was they were increasing my rent and i was like i just can't i can't absorb that you know and i was just doing the numbers and it was it was getting really dire and um and i realized if i go on and i agree to this newer uh, rent i would not be able to pay my payroll and i will shut down and i just i that was the thing i was like i just i cannot not make that um uh, you know, not honor the obligation every two weeks, you know, and so that made the, the hard choice, like, instead of like trying to wait it out and not pay people, I should just quit when like, I know I can for sure pay my payroll. And so, and you know, and my, and people used to say, oh, it's because she paid too much. I'm like, no, it's, it had nothing to do with my, you know, I, I do, I did pay um, more than, um, uh, the average, you know, but it was like, it was the rent. It was a rent that was a final deciding factor mm. uh, in my wanting to close, you know, and not to mention, you know, like my knees were like, not so good. 
my, my fucking body was falling apart and stuff. But, you know, like, I just, you know, like, I, like, I, I, I bump into, uh, you know, former employees all the time and not all the time, but like, uh, you know, enough times, you know, and it's like, I never have to like avere my eyes. I never, you know, like, <laughs> look at her face, how are you doing? You know, like, you know, so I feel like that, that was more valuable to me than, you know, yeah, keeping it going. Anybody who can last more than three years as an operator has grit. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, anything it's, over a year is 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 brutal. Yeah, the, the the first year is just like, you really, um, it tests your mettle, like what you mm -hmm. made of girl, you know? And then you, you know, cause it's like, you know, like it's the first year is like, if you're gonna shit any bricks, you be shit bricks in, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, cause it's like, it's fucking real, you know? Like, I mean, the first weekend of your opening, you're like, oh, this fucking dream. Why the fuck did I dream yeah. this dream? You know, That's like- so true. Yeah. Any yeah. reason, any reason anybody has before they go into a restaurant is all bullshit. It's all, you know, it's all like weird idealistic things that once you hit the practical uh, rubber meets the road, it things are completely different than what you thought they were. Yeah, and I come from a family of restaurants. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they're like every like when they heard I was opening a restaurant, they're like, we we finally understand what you do because they had no understanding what I did in social work, but they also said, don't do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, but even yeah, it's like it's it's also very different because you know, if it's like a, a restaurant that that's some sort of like a is like some reflection of your like a, a, a love of yours you know every every dish that didn't execute 100 feels very personal mm. every person who wasn't 100 satisfied feels like a failure you know so it's like it's very different like working in a restaurant and executing dishes versus like it's your name it's it's your vision and it's yeah. just and that's the it's 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 not like the physical work it's the psychological trauma <laughs> that like gets you you know and like um did you know that um most restaurant workers like i i, I was going through like adp and they were talking they were talking up their um their payroll services and they said you yeah, we can you know we can alleviate you of all these um uh you know these headaches of payroll and i you know and they're like because you know um when is uh, what, what what like the most common time employers send in their payroll information and I'm like I don't and it's just 2 a.m I'm like that is fucking true because mm, every 2 so a.m I was I was like putting you know so I was like oh fuck and I ended up going with ADP because I couldn't afford the extra I, mean, I just fucking did everything by hand that's probably why I'm burned out too but you know <laughs> but it's like yeah so like you like you, you're kind of sleeping and you're like oh fuck it's like tomorrow's payroll you know tomorrow's you know, I need to send payroll in tonight so that two days later, you know, I can have paycheck too. It's just like crazy stuff like that. So shit is real. Yeah. 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 So when you were um, close to deciding to shut down, mm -hmm. uh, what did you think that you were going to transition into? You know, I don't know. Um, you know, I've been always wanting, you know, like to to write more. And I just, you know, owning a restaurant and like having a writing practice is like, um they don't go hand hard hand. they don't you know I, I was able to write a few things here and there but it wasn't like anything regular and so i thought you know what you know I'll, I'll get back to writing um i just kind of like really didn't care <laughs> like 
I'll get an admin job, you know, like I just wanted like really I was just once I decided that we were going to close, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, we had like a month and a half to find new uh, employment for the staff that were there. We just, you wow. know, one, I wanted to say goodbye to the neighborhood like that. We just wanted to execute, you know, um, and that was and it, it I mean, because really this had been such a dream. It was like it was, you know, gut wrenching and stuff, you know, but, you know, so like thinking about what what was next like it didn't it kind of didn't register and didn't matter you know and, um, and so what yeah. did you end up how did you transition out well um so you know i think like it was maybe a month or so or, or maybe even before it closed google fab of redbook fish sauce emailed me and says hey i hear that you're closing um do you want to go to vietnam go to Foucault? with me, wow. you know, and I, and because he'd been asking for a while and I said, I'm so busy, you know, and I, I can't pay, I don't have money, enough money to pay staff to do the work I need to do uh, to go. And he goes, well, you don't have that problem anymore. So, <laughs> so, and that's, yeah. that's, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And then we did that. So that was like, you know, super fun. And that when I, and when what I, year was that? Um, 2018. Oh, I didn't realize maybe you closed. 19 early. Yeah, we closed like in October 2018. So wow. okay. yeah, so I don't remember it was like the first of the year 2019 or something. But uh, no, I think it must have been earlier because what happened was that so we I went to um, Vietnam. And he had like, um, he had a, a documentary a documentarian uh, uh, um, film there. And so I was kind of like a you know, like a chef's perspective on, on stuff. And then that was when I got to know him better, more the operation better. And I like, oh, I really like how he runs his business and how he treats his workers and stuff. So that's when I was like, hey, I should, if you want, let's like, I'd love to be your R&D chef. And then I came back and then, um, and then, uh, and then Dave Chang called me up and said, I'd love for you to go to Beirut to interview a shawarma master with Chris Ying. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that is so random. But did you know so, Dave Chang from the restaurant? Did he uh, come I did. in? How did you? I did. Yeah, okay. I know him because he, I, 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 he, um, his team interviewed me for Ugly Delicious um, season one, and then, um, and then he asked me on to his podcast, and then uh, we just had a good time, and then, and then he said like, hey, you want to go to Beirut for me with Chris? And so I know nothing about Beirut, but I would love to go. And so it ended up like I was interviewing a refugee um, Syrian trauma master who was now in Beirut. And so he introduced Syrian style um, a shawarma to Lebanon, like, you know, and I got to understand like, you know, Le you know, uh, the difference between Syrian shawarma versus uh, Lebanese shawarma, you know, and, you know, and like, I just need like, I'm like, oh, I'm interviewing a refugee. Like, I kind of channeled all the things I hate, all the questions I hate when people ask about refugees is what they just want to talk about the refugee experience, but they never talk about you. Like, the thing is, the, the, 
the interesting thing about Abu wasn't necessary because he was a refugee, but he was a shawarma master from Damascus who had a following. So once he opened in Beirut, like people were already clamming, mm. you know, and like he had this like really wonderful. So I just wanted to ask him more about his expertise than just like, you know, because I think people think that our refugee experience defines us, you know, completely. You know, it doesn't. And this, and so, you know, the and, and Abu, when I, when I first met him, you know, he was kind of a little standoffish, you know? And when I asked like, not, I think he was expecting me to answer those questions that are kind of very basic questions, you know? And and then he realized, oh, you're asking like real questions like about me <laughs> versus like idea you think of, you know? And so he like got really into it, you know? And like, it's like, he talked about how he learned how to like make shawarma by like sneaking, but really like sneaking looks when the master went looking because they're all very secretive and like he like looked through a peephole and like you know a knot in the in the in the, the wall you know so it's kind of it was very tempopo you know so yeah, like yeah, yeah. it was really got into it and i was just like it was really great you know so uh and i got to like try like i had never had like raw um lamb's uh what is that um liver before and the texture was amazing, you know? So like, I, it was like, uh, yeah. So, uh, and then after that, I, you know, I told Dave I could only stay there for like two days. Could I go back, kind of fly back so I could do my Benton Collective, you know? So it was, it was just like a whirlwind. And I was just like, well, you know, this is not so bad. You know, close your ears. <laughs> just having like, just more experiences I had for a long time because I was just like, really just wanting to make this restaurant work. Yeah, uh, God, we got to go. I I, I want to like check out this uh, shawarma master. I have to tangentially like make a turn because I couldn't. My brain couldn't get out of uh, the question. What the fuck is a shawarma master? Like, what does it take to become a shawarma master? I mean, it's like uh, I didn't it even know that that existed. Yeah, I mean, it's like quite an art, you know. And his uh, his his spit. We did, he said, we'll do a small spit today. It was 30 kilos. <laughs> 30 kilos was the smallest. And it's like, it's it, you have to be a master at like meat cutting, understand like how to like, cause I think like, you know, like he 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 gets his his uh, his uh, lamb real young. He, he asks, it's like all these like considerations you have to make sure that the lamb is the, what it is. And the seasoning is like so simple. So you have to understand just the quality you know and so he he like i was talking to him and then he like let me cut some some lamb with him which i'm like okay okay you know like i just thought you know so um it was it was like real um yeah re really uh eye-opening and it made me really appreciate the just the hard work that goes into it's kind of like fun you know like if people don't know about it they don't really have a lot of respect for it because they don't know yeah. you know your kung fu to get there right you know and like you could tell his kung fu was like great you know because it's just like the way he cut the way he's able to like shape it and like just and and it's a layering of fat and lean too uh, you know so, so it's not just putting stuff on and then you're done you know yeah i there's so much to that uh shawarma or um What's the Mexican um, one? A pastor. Pastor. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's so much uh, magic to that that it is. I, you know, now that you say uh, you associate the word master to shawarma or al pastor, um, it is insane. There's a restaurant in LA called Abash. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've heard of it. It comes from uh, the owner comes from this other small hole in the wall called Roros, 
and their shawarma is to me the best in the city and it's just a whole in the wall and now that you bring up this whole idea of a shawarma mat i'm gonna go talk to maurice over at albash um yeah, because yeah. yeah his is the best his uh, uh, shawarma is the best in the city and um it's chicken what shawarma. style is it what style is lebanese it? Mm, okay yeah because lebanese. what Abu told me is that uh, the Lebanese prefer leaner shawarma, where a Syrian shawarma is a little fattier. And I prefer the little fattier because I love a uh, fago. Mm. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So uh, for me, fago is the best. You know, that's the best cut for for fago. You know, so yeah, it's it was amazing. Like the, the top, you know, like a in like a, a Mexican pastor is like the top is a pineapple. Mm -hmm. The top of Abu's is like just like a, a layer of of, of, of uh, lamb's fat it just like trickles wow. down and so it just it's just like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and um the chicken shawarma i think has yogurt in it uh the lebanese one i don't mm. know if that tenderizes the the chicken but god almighty the flavor on that place yeah best well, in I, got, I gotta check it out yeah, we, we should probably go sometime. It's, yeah. it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So then once you um, started to, to, you know, you came back from Fukuok, came back from Beirut, um, things started to settle down. Uh, then, you know, what started to move? I mean, COVID came in, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we have, yeah, I mean, but I think it was 2019, I became the R&D chef for Red Boat. So it was like a year of no, not COVID, not yet COVID. Yeah. And so, but that year, you know, we, we, we like, we're working on a proposal for our cookbook with Dan Nguyen. Dan Nguyen is my partner, but she also like, when she, when I was talking to her about like, oh, you know, let's think about some, you know, I'm like, I'm like bouncing ideas off of her, like, you know, the fun projects we can do. I knew I wanted to do like a chef's rub series, you know, like, and, right red chefs that you know have like a great relationship with red, red boat and it's like a charitable giving uh a, a collaboration and so we did one with um with uh brian ing of Casilla, uh and his um his, all this all the you know um 10 of the proceeds went to um uh like an animal rescue that he mm -hmm. really loves and then we did one with Stuart Brioza who's like a big big supporter of Red Boat and he did a um uh spice garum salt um and his went to zero uh zero food print which is a like um a program to offset carbon credits for yeah. restaurants just anyway to to to, to increase the the, the uh, amount of um, farms that you know uh, transition to uh, more sustainable practices um and then um we did like a caramel and then so we we were all you had i had all these ideas and i wanted like and i said like we should also do a jam you know um an instant nip jam and then things like oh when's uh, red boat's anniversary or when did red boat start and then uh going said oh 20 uh 2011 and so we're like oh you know things like was telling me that oh 10 years is up you know almost up it's like two years away you should write a cookbook and so i asked in to come on a call and you know we just proposed it to good and then then started on the proposal to send out to a publishing company and so yeah so we we pitched the idea got it um greenlit and or got it you know um hmh mm -hmm. yeah hmh acquired it um the publishing house and then uh we spent um we spent uh 
uh, the pandemic, um, writing it. Yeah, writing it. Yeah, the Perfect, first of the right? pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It was Perfect crazy timing. though. Yeah, I mean, we, we was just like, we don't want to go to the supermarket shopping. We don't want to fucking die. So like every time we went to supermarket shopping, we knew, we just couldn't make a mistake because we didn't want to go out again. You know, like okay, let's just do you know. And then we kind of bought like twice as much as we needed because I knew I was gonna mess up one time. You know, just stuff like that. Random yeah. shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. random. You've uh, you've mentioned to me before that um, you love L.A. so much. Um, I do. But why? Why do you love L.A.? What, what, what makes it? What, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it's uh, it's not completely logical, but at the same time, totally logical, <laughs> like love is, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, well, one is I, I love L.A. because, uh, you know, for the precise reason people don't love it because they say there's no city core i love that there's just like pockets of a neighborhood that make up a mm. whole you know so there's no centralized place and because of that you just have these very distinctive neighborhoods um and it's like home to like the largest thai community home to the largest community outside of uh, uh korea you know vietnam you know and all that stuff and what what and then, so they're the largest populations outside of Korea, but at the same time, they're all centered around LA. So what we have is critical mass in Los Angeles mm. that you don't have anywhere else. else. And you know, and I'm gonna like make an enemy by saying like, whatever the East Coasters are thinking, like their Asian community is strong. They have nothing, nothing compared to West Coast, you know, particularly SoCal, you know, like our critical mass is so amazing. You know, and so we get to have this these these conversations that don't get get interrupted, because you know other places they're not the majority, you know, and so the the conversation is is richer, you know, um, and and it's 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 not so much of I was the only kid, I was the only Asian kid, you know, it's like no, it's like you you had a whole community, and and that's why Little Saigon in in Orange County is so amazing, is because we didn't that community wasn't created to talk to white people. Yeah. That community you, was created for right. movie, and because of that, the food, the food, the conversations, the culture Untouched, yeah. is in, is is has depth to it. So much depth to it that người Việt from Vietnam today, and the you know mm -hmm. <laughs> these who like these who like in Little Saigon to see what's up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so that's like for me, that's why I think Los Angeles uh, is. Um, because of the critical mass and because of the um, the, the the political work that that uh, is being done here, like the El Monte case, really, uh, you know, there was a lot of leadership that that was formed to combat uh, such a work, and it, it originated in Los Angeles. It was also AWA, which is a, a San Francisco based, you know, but so much comes from here. You know, so much talent comes from the, you know, what I'm not sure what it was called now, but we used to call it Asian Pacific Legal Center, you know, like. All the the lawyers doing like Kim Kim Lu Ing, mm -hmm. you know she an asylum um, lawyer like it, oh, so much talent comes because you had this this moment you know like you know the ethnic studies or Asian yeah you know, we, we we UCLA had the first Asian American studies right. uh, department you know like can't touch it you know what I mean whatever East Coast <laughs> it's like and you, and and you know I'm not you know for me like I always know like where like when like uh East Coast Asian Americans up you're from the East Coast I can tell just the way you're just like you know like mm, just, 
you know, it's not your fault you were born, you were, you didn't grow up here. It's not your fault, you know? <laughs> what are we talking about how Asian America is like so fucking great in New York? Okay. <laughs> but there is a big difference between the yeah. East Coast and, and West Coast, um, anything, uh, you know, East and West Coast Asians are, you know, it's different. And I think that the East Coast Asians that come out to the West Coast to live um, gives, it gives a richness to the, the the West Coast because these East Coast Asians bring a certain their their culture and it it, it reinforces this uh, strength in a different part of our West Coast culture. It gives a you know I got to give it to them. They 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 grind. They'll go harder. You got to give it to them, right? The East uh, uh, Coast go harder. They go harder. I don't. You don't, I think, don't so? think so. I don't think so. L <laughs> A L A baby. You know. <laughs> Yeah, not, not just like SoCal, not just LA, SoCal, yeah. SoCal is like untouched, you know? So yeah, so when I say LA, you know, like, I mean like this whole environs of like, yeah. parts of, from parts of Orange County too. So. Think. I so. wanna hear who you think are some of the leaders in the Vietnamese American space today, if you're comfortable talking hmm. about that. Oh, oh, okay, well, uh, yeah, no doubt it's, uh does work but you know i you know and 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 you know ocean Boom's book just came out you know so um those be besides those two are there any other prominent voices in the vietnamese american space that is mainstream and um white people are listening uh are they making effective changes uh, with with the with their with their moves well you know i mean I mean, that's kind of interesting that, you know, like one, this like, uh, um, this um, uh, favoring of like prominent, you know, cause I do think like, I mean, why I love LA is because it's not just one person, it's like a whole community. So I think like, you know, like, or so for me, like if that's always like, that's the organizer in me, you know, not one person, but like a whole community, like I think visual communications, you know, like a great, is, is a great, um, uh you know um uh organization that 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 um helped you know like yeah justin lynn i mean you know come on who doesn't love that's the fears i mean who didn't remember kind of like the the cultural shift that came after um uh tokyo drift you know absolutely you, you know what i mean so um i and i think like that's just a, you know justin lynn john cho you know but there's also like you know john cho's first feature I think was with Quentin, uh, Quentin, Quentin from Quentin Lee. Quentin Lee, Quentin, Quentin Lee. Yeah, Quentin Lee. I was like Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Quentin, Quentin Lee in Shopping for Fangs, you know, or that was the first time I, I heard of him and that was kind of, I think his breakout role, you know. So, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, so there's, you know, Margaret Cho. I mean, they all like connected in, 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 in this way, you know, but I, I'm not sure like, you know, do I really care about prominence? I do I really kind of care what, um, Okay, what yeah, that's people a are listening to, you know what I mean? See, that's but a great answer. What's inspiring answer. to me is different. Yeah. That's a great answer, but at the same time, and we were debating about this very thing last night. Who gives a fuck about prominence? Well, all right. Well, let's debate that because somebody needs to speak out and say shit and move move things. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the quote unquote the prominence or the pedestal to like shoot out these messages or or tweet out these um, ideas, then 
do we have a voice? I mean, that's debatable, right? And and that's what we were talking about last night. A lot of us were just like, it got heated. It's like we, this very idea of prominence and why mainstream matters. Uh, we're debating it. Does it matter? It kind of does. I mean, everybody was arguing in different directions, but it kind of does if you think about it. Because without a Viet Thanh win, uh, the the United States sometimes wouldn't listen or wouldn't have an opportunity to debate this thought from our position. And so yeah, somebody like same, Vitan Nguyen. Yeah, but at the same time, I think you're falling into like, if you're like, oh, without Viet, no one would talk. It's more like, because Viet's there, you know, the, you know journalists don't, they don't, they don't want to go anywhere else. Because for me, I feel like, you know, what the work we should be doing is actually like getting more voices out there. You know? Yes, so I agree. That's, so like choosing one spokesperson is very unfair. Totally. It's really unfair. But, you but know? this is why I wanted to talk about this very d d d thing. We need to have more of that. You're right. We need to have. But OK, so now it's, it's actually getting to where I'm, uh, I want to. We need more of your 10 wins because why have one person on the, on the thing? But how do we get more voices out there? Well, um, I would say that we need more voices, but I'm not saying we need more Viet Tan win because we don't need like replicas, <laughs> you know what I mean? But what you're talking about is you're just talking about, you know, just need uh, uh, media in general to be able to um, find diverse voices within the community so that the community doesn't just look like one person, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I find that um, like, uh, I mean, we're just talking about Vietnamese people, right? We're not talking Yeah, just Vietnamese about, people. I see. That's a lot of that. Yeah. But that that is I, I think like we were set up for that. We said the only one only one person gets to be that, you know, and and that goes to like, you know, who's we set that up. What do you mean by we set that up? Well, OK, so media has set it up so we, that the Vietnamese American community only has one voice, you know, and it's the same person they go to. And and um, that's it's a big criticism about media in general is that it's, it's lazy. You only they're like they don't want to have to do any extra work, so they go to the same people. So there's no richness in the, in that you know. Yeah. It's not a yeah. fucking tapestry. It's a fucking photocopy. You know. What a I mean? monolith. Yeah, it's a monolith. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. now, and this is also what we debated: Did the media, did American media, get lazy and only selected this one guy, or is this one guy designed? He designed it himself, and he is the only one because nobody else is designing it for themselves. No, I, I, I that, that, that it is a common it uh, through uh, like there have been studies that are like say like you know like media they, they they just they're very journalists are very lazy and they go to the same source they couldn't pick you know and like it, for them it's like once you get quoted it's more likely you get quoted again you know that's the that's and that's the problem when you don't have you know diversity you don't have like like uh, journalists who are uh, um, invested in having you know in 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 cultivating a large pool of sources so you just go back to the same source like why is david chang always like they ask him about every something you know like i like chang you know but like he isn't he isn't like he doesn't know everything you know but they ask him for it and that's a problem and you know food journalism is very lazy about that stuff you know because it doesn't want to to go beyond that and that's why they like to create stars so that they can go back to the same stars, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, so that's why you know it's like not like I, I begrudge anybody about that, but you know, like that's the problem. Is like you know you get quoted, and then and that's like that's why like white experts get asked by everything. Is like they just they don't want to like oh, 
uh, MSG, let's go back to Harold McGee again. Like who the, f- there's so many fucking other people, you know? So, yeah. and they become the authority, you know, it's kind of this weird, you know, thing where like authority is given. And then once it's given once and it, 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 um, it has traction, you know? Then you know, like fucking Andrew Zimmer, and you know, like fuck that guy. Everybody mm-hmm. fucking loves it. I'm like, you know, have you? You have know, they call him the professor now. I'm like, have you fucking forgotten that he had this whole show called Bizarre Foods, in which he called other people's food bizarre, mm-hmm. and that he like patted himself in the back by 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 the mere fact that he's able to to you know swallow it. You know, fuck that shit. You know, yeah. and then he, but then he's like been able to like have this like authority you know and it's like you know what i've been eating balut since forever too so you know like it's so yeah you know so i i I find that it is it is part of media like they they go to the same sources again and again and again you know and then but you know it's very good about also about you know like bumping other folks and everything too so it's like i don't think it's like what viet engineered you know, but that is like how media plays out and how, you know, and then our part is like, how do you, how do you, you know, always uh, encourage or if not like shame media is like fucking go, you know, find more people, not find other people, find more people. Don't be so fucking lazy about the shit, you know? Yeah, there's this, you know, um, dearth of voices. And I hope in the next you know, 10 years that we could have 20 or 30 more Viet Thanh wins and Amanda wins and Bao wins and uh, more trans and, you know, more Vietnamese names out there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, I mean, because again, that, I mean, that's what media does is like, oh, we get me, we need the next Viet, we need the next Amanda. I'm like, no, because these people that create the own lanes because they did something really extraordinary, you know? And so like what we need is we just need to find new voices, you know, in general and not like kind of ha- compare them to, you know, because, you know, uh, is Ocean, you know, Ocean Vuong the next Viet? No, Ocean Vuong is his own person with his, yeah. you know, with his own voice, you know? Um, he had this like fucking Instagram post in which he's like, he said he inadvertently um, channeled short round because he had like these glasses and I, ha- I was like, <laughs> I fucking died. I was like dead. I was like, okay, okay. He's a honey. funny dude. He, he's, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just I, yeah, it's slayed me for sure. But yeah. Ocean is a super funny guy. Um, in, if you go back on one of his IG posts, he's like, uh, like semi-naked and he's like all, and, and the, the, I can't remember what the caption is, but it's a really funny um you know out of because you know he teaches and he you know he's his writer but at the same time he's got this identity that is i don't give a fuck what you think you know and he's just out there and he doesn't care yeah it's it's reflective in his writing you know yeah 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 and you know um i had a conversation you know i had a podcast with him and he knows so much about mma about mixed martial arts Mm. right and you i didn't know that and then bowen brought it up he's like you know you should listen to this one episode and he talks in depth about MMA and the science of, of. so we actually talked a little bit about on the podcast about uh, his knowledge of MMA and why, you know, you know, he's talks about violence in, in one, in, in one way. And then, you know, he's really into MMA and, and, you know, it's kind of all conflicting, but it's not, it all makes sense when he explains it. Yeah. I, 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 I can see that it wouldn't be conflicting. It's, it's, 
uh, yeah. So I, I really, yeah, I appreciate his mind for sure, you know, and like the the connections he makes, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ban Chung Collective, right? Is that what you, yeah. you talked about earlier? What is that? Well, it's just, you know, I started uh, this, we just celebrated our 10 years, actually, or not, not the 10, yeah, our ten, not our 10 years, our 10th annual. But, you know, um, when I was, you know, when I came out, um, you know, going to theater was like, just kind of uncomfortable, because it's just homophobic people. <laughs> You know, he's like, you know, it's like an uncle who's homophobic or a cousin, say some snide <laughs> shit. And the thing is that, you know, it's like, Ted, you don't want to be throwing hands, you know? And then, you know, and then, and it's always like, <laughs> and it's always like, they always nice saw you, and then you always have to, uh, you know, they fucking laugh at it, you know? And I'm like, the fuck, you know? It was just like, it was just like every time, like, and it wasn't just that, but it was like Thanksgiving and, you know, Christmas, can I get, you know, like, just like, I fucking hated going there because it's like, you already fucking know who I am. Why the fuck, you know, why do you got to fucking, you why know, you just, hate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, and like when I just got out of college and I'm like, oh, you know, um, you don't have a job yet, maybe because your hair too short. Because at the time I had like cropped hair, you know, like I had a buzz cut actually, you know, and I was like, you just shut the fuck up is what you should do, you know? Um, and so anyway, so I it was just like, I just felt like, you know, there was a moment I was like disowned and, you know, and so like just it was just like really tenuous and, you know, uh, it was like being disowned actually was the best thing ever because, you know, we're like, ah, you know, I don't know you no more. I'm like, okay, fuck that shit and fucking wild out, you know, and I gave <laughs> interviews left and right about, you know, like, because I at the time we were starting a Vietnamese lesbian bisexual trans uh, support group and Orange County registered interviewed me and it says deep tramp from Orange County or Huntington Beach or some shit, you know, and they're like, ah. And she called me up and I said, I thought you just owed me. You know, <laughs> I thought you don't know me no more. And oh, like, shit. So, so your grandma called you up after that happened? Well, because she didn't even read English. So it was like one of my cousins or my uncle was like, you know, and I was like, you know, I'm like, look, you already you don't know me no more. So, you know, so then so then we kind of like. So she's like, you know, who, who are bad in the land right now? You know, like, like, what? like, and I was like, what the, and like, I, I'm queer grandma, you know, but she was like, she made me promise that I would not go on the record in the Orange County Register until she died. <laughs> Wait, did you make that agreement with her or no? I did. I did. Cause I'm like, I didn't really care about the Orange, Orange County Register. <laughs> Cause yeah, she didn't say nothing about the LA Times. <laughs> <laughs> But why did you agree to it um, knowing that she disowned you and why would you agree to why would you appease her? That's my question. Um, you know, I, I mean, I guess one, you don't know grandma, you know, she's like she fucking wear you down. But then also it was like it was no stakes for me because like I I didn't I didn't, you know, the, the Orange County Register was the only reason I was on um, was that uh, and I thought it was also um, disingenuous you know because i think I, I lived in huntington beach for a little bit you know um but then uh, i think officially my 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 license driver's license had it but i was living in la but uh they need or the orange county register needed someone who who lived in orange county so they can quote and so mm. nobody in orange county at the time wanted to be 
on the wow. record mm -hmm. so i'm like okay fucking use my name you know and they're like i'm like i don't live in orange, orange county anymore goes, but your license plate still says it or license <laughs> driver's license still says it. i'm yeah. like okay i think it's a little okay but you know like they okay, just need, roll with it, they yeah. need to they need to corroborate and not like make it like no one really existed so anyway so for me like i didn't i if she had to like i won't go on record in any any outlets i go hell no you know but i didn't tend to have another article written about Vinny. i mean the article's done i don't think you need two articles unlike especially yeah. what i did you know so and, yeah and i was and like sure you, grandma you know did you guys ever make up and be good um well you know what uh, you know uh i'd see and she's like uh she was you know she would always say something about like when you're going back to church and all this other stuff and you know and then i, I just said like at some point you know uh, and when you get married and like dude like if you had seen me can i had your hair you know what i mean like yeah like, dude anybody who's married me is a gay man okay because it's just <laughs> it's just like they there's no way i'm passing as a straight woman okay um <laughs> and uh she oh, she hated my my short hair and uh and i said like, you know i said like, grandma will you ever accept me you know um and then grandma's like accept you accept you i pray for you every day and that was her form of acceptance you know it's like you know so i'm just like okay it's kind of twisted but i see where you're going you know and i'm like it's not gonna happen grandma but okay just keep on asking it's still gonna be a no you know and then, and then she had to then she got dementia you know and so it was just you know like for me i you know with grandma the you can never win an argument you just kind of just like for me i just like even when i was younger like i never won an argument with her i just sidestepped her <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it's like look you know it's like she's not gonna change you know and then what you know i just i get to see myself spending my whole entire life trying to get her to change you know but yeah and she had dementia and then you know and i really had to make peace with that and like you know you know uh i i went i went back every week just to kind of help her like bathe her and all this other stuff because you know my grandpa was you know he was overwhelmed and we had an attendant you know but but that tenant was working like 24 7 i'm like this is unethical so i just like came once once a week to like hey this is supposed to be your day off and you know like official official so you don't have to do anything so yeah so I mean, we, you know, Grandma was a it was a difficult person. She was a complicated person, and um, yeah. But you know, like it or not, I, I was our histories are tied. Yeah, and you know? probably forged you to become who you are today. Um, In some ways, yeah. You know, like as much as she didn't want me to be the heir of her of her legacy, I think I am. You know. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> you're really you're you're a tough woman, you're a strong woman. Um, you yeah. know, yeah, she she didn't want me to be her heir, but oh well, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes think that when, like, you know, uh, like, yeah, I just I I think that you know, I in my head it's like you know now like when you're you pass away, I don't believe in heaven or hell, I don't believe in the afterlife really, but I if, if there's anything, it's like you just become consciousness and you kind of know everything yeah. and all the bullshit, like your earthly considerations like kind of go away. And I so I think grandma sometimes looks at I go, okay girl, okay, that's good. You know, you know, grandma never can, you know, she not like like or like you know, 
that's fucking high praise, you know? Come with that. It's high praise. You know what I mean? You know? Like, yeah. I mean, like, the first time I made I made dinner, a dinner party for a friend of mine, my grandma would just go and I go, like, and she was just like, call everything crap. You know, like, like good job, good job. Like, oh, okay, my, 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 hear all the stories and heartbreaking in its own way too you know, you know war produces all these kinds of um different outcomes and whatever's going on in ukraine and you know afghanistan you know this is the human condition happening over and over and over again and thank you so much for being who you are and being such a huge contribution to um our vietnamese community here in uh, southern california uh thanks so much it was a it was a pleasure and um Thanks for letting me not stay on point. <laughs> That's my job is to make you. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I will be talking to you very soon. All right. Thank you, Ken. Okay. 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 Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.